but you have to learn how to enjoy that journey as you're getting there, right? Because there is no destination. Success is just life. Life goes on, time goes on. And the way I think about it is like, you know, there's a boat in the water, right? And the boat's just going to drift, right? So if you leave the boat as is in the water, what's going to happen? The boat's just going to drift. It's going to go wherever it wants to go. Mm. So if you want the boat to go a certain way, the boat is a metaphor for your life. If you want your life to drift a certain way, you have to take control of that wheel and steer it to where you want it to go. The following is a conversation with Anmol Singh. Anmol made a name for himself as a consultant in the trading and investing industry and in 2015 launched his firm, Live Traders. He has also coached and trained over a thousand traders and investors, some of which have gone on to run their own hedge funds. Anmol is also considered the leading expert in trading psychology and has helped thousands of traders worldwide to deal with psychological and behavioral issues that arise when high stakes are on the line. Lastly, Anmol is also an author and has published the book, Prepping for Success, 10 Keys for Making in Life, in which he shares his learnings and what he wished he knew when he started his career. Here's his story. Anmol, on uh, this MLK Day, really appreciate you taking the time on the day that the markets are closed. You're still on the podcast. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Awesome. Well, Anmol, for those that don't know, is an investing and financial markets and trading psychology expert and a lot of really fun and interesting stuff to get into. Uh, but before we get into all the crux of that, every journey has a start. So just to backtrack it a bit, when did you first become interested in trading and really where did that interest come from? Yeah, so trading was not something that I grew up thinking about or that I'm going to be a trader. It was more so, you know, I was in college and my I was studying business degree in London, uh, Brunel University. So while I was in college studying a business degree, I wanted to get into uh, marketing and business administration. That was my original idea. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, you know, a couple of guys in the university, we got together and we're talking about the stock market. And I was like, I'm always curious about it. I just don't know how any of this works. Like, why do the stocks move up and down? Like, mm -hmm. who decides that? Like, I had so many questions. So I became really curious about it. And then me and a couple of guys, uh, we got around the university and we saw that, you know, anything that you were interested in, there was a club or society in college that you could join, right? If you're an entrepreneur, there's an entrepreneur society. If you're into football, there's a football society. If you're into swimming, there's a swimming club. Uh, but there was no such thing as like a trading and investing club. So me and a bunch of guys, we teamed up together mm -hmm. and said, why don't we start like a trading investing society in college? So we started that, just three guys. And then uh, we used to meet up every week. Uh, and then slowly the group grew to like 20, 30 people. And we just meet every week, talk about what we learned, maybe a book we read, uh, something we watched on TV, just bounce ideas off. We're all trying to learn. And that's kind of how my first little in instinct or the little seed was planted about getting interested in uh, the stock market. And the great part is that, you know, 20 years later, that club still exists in college, which is awesome. And it's a thriving society now with the hundreds of members. Got it. Awesome to see that your legacy is still going after all that time. Uh, on a fun note, do you remember what the name of that club was? Yes, we just named it Trading and Investing Society. Yeah. <laughs> the simple, the simpler, the better. I love that yeah. name. Um, but, you know, also thinking about your college story, I know one of the things that you did was while everyone was out partying, you know, kind of doing their own thing, you were in your dorm room studying markets, trading, just kind of doing it, doing your own thing. And I know your first year of trading, uh, unfortunately, wasn't a profitable one, as it is for many beginners. Uh, you know, everyone has to go through their lessons. But as you're going through that first year, making those mistakes, what's really going through your head? Yeah, I think the first year um, when I was making my mistake, I kind of knew that it's me, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm I'm gambling. 
There's, there's got to be a difference. The trading is when you actually know what you're doing. You have mm-hmm. statistics behind it. You actually have a system. You have a method. What I was doing was just randomly reading articles and buying a stock, you know, like, and I, I clearly knew I was doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't, it didn't really hurt me, so to speak, that I was like, okay, yeah, I messed up. I shouldn't have done that. That was pure gambling. And let me try to actually learn how all of this works. So uh, that was kind of the biggest thing that I was always very realistic with myself. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, that's my mistake and I can fix it easily by not repeating that mistake or by having an actual plan. Like, just like you wouldn't get into a business without a business plan. You're not going to get into trading without a trading plan. So that's mm-hmm. why when I lo- lost money, I was like, okay, I can fix this. I can get through it. Let me try to do it properly the next time around so I don't repeat this mistake. So, you know, that was kind of going through my head. Um, luckily enough, I surrounded myself with a lot of great people. Uh, my mentor, who's my business partner now, mm-hmm. but back in the day, he taught me how to trade. So for me, it was always very easy to go back to him and kind of bounce ideas or show him my spreadsheet of all the trades I took and he could review them for me. And uh, we, we always knew, okay, there's certain tweaks I need to make. If I make those, then I can actually make money. So uh, I just kept on going through the losing streak. Uh, and I think, yeah, the key is just not to lose all of your money. And that's one thing I did well is I lost yeah. half of it. So I still have <laughs> half to play with and build it back. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people make the mistake of losing all of it. Mm-hmm. And then, well, how are you going to come back? For sure. I mean, I think it's also wise that you kind of looked at your mistakes when a lot of people would really be emotional and, you know, think the world's collapsing on them when realistically you kind of just have to look at what happened. But uh, on a similar note, that year, do you remember what your biggest trading mistake was? Yeah, I mean, my biggest mistake was I wasn't really trading. Like, I was just picking a stock. I read an article. I was like, oh, this is going to be the next big thing. And you buy it. I'm like, but that article, A, it's a two-year-old article. It's been Mm -hmm. written for long and millions of people have read it. So what edge do I really have? I don't yeah. have any edge. So I think um, that was kind of the thing that uh, the mistake was just not knowing what I'm doing. And there's a big difference. You know, buying a stock doesn't make you a trader. Mm-hmm. You know, a trader has an actual trading plan with statistics and all, just like a casino. Would, right? A casino knows exactly that 0.1% edge that they have on a roulette or a blackjack. Mm-hmm. They know the game. So it doesn't bother them if somebody comes and bigs a massive round, right? Somebody comes into a casino, wins millions of dollars. They don't mind. Because they know the longer you play, eventually they'll come out ahead. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the thing with trading is you need to know your own edge. You've got to be the casino rather than the player in the casino. Got it, for sure. Awesome that you were able to kind of learn that lesson. And I definitely agree with you in the sense that if you don't feel like you have an edge, you probably shouldn't be trading. Or if you don't have that confidence, you probably shouldn't be doing what you're doing. And I think that applies to not only trading, but a lot of careers. But back to kind of after that first year, did you ever have any doubts? Or did you ever think of about quitting? Oh, many, many times. Yeah. Like a lot of times I thought about quitting because first I was like, you know, do I have it in me? Because I never grew up good at like math or numbers mm-hmm. or anything to do with that. So for me, I was like, am I stretching myself? Am I, you know, beyond my own limit? Like I'm horrible at math. I struggled in college and school. You know, accounting was like my worst thing that I studied ever. Mm-hmm. So I was like, is numbers, is this really meant for me? You know, maybe I'm overstretching myself or thinking too much of myself. So there was a lot of doubts like that that maybe stock markets for those intelligent people is not for me. Um, and then the other doubt was, you know, what if all of this is just marketing that I'm learning, you know, for people <laughs> online that you can make a lot of money in stock market. What if I just bought into all the hype and it's not actually real? Mm-hmm. You know, and so there's a lot of different thoughts. Um, but then, you know, the key was just coming back to the center and realizing that, okay, there's a lot, clearly a lot of people making money in the stock market, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's a real profession. It's a real business. Otherwise, the whole world won't be doing it. So clearly it works. So then I got to figure out my edge in that market. So I think uh, that was kind of the thing. But yeah, many doubts all the time. I think even until even until year two or three, 
Well, even when I was making money, I had doubts about quitting because I was like, you know, is this the limit? Is this how much I can make? And even when you're making money, you turn the corner, you're like, but I thought about trading is I'm going to be making millions of dollars. And yeah, I made like 70,000 this year, but I'm like, is that really what I want? I mean, I could make more in a job. So there were still doubts along the way, but then I always got to take a step back and realize, okay, year one, I lost money, right? Year two, let's say I'm making money. Not much, but twenty, thirty thousand, whatever. Year three, I'm making seventy, eighty thousand. Year four, I'm making one hundred fifty, hundred two hundred thousand. So I'm like, okay, it's it's getting there. So I just need to stick with it, and eventually I'll get to that making millions of dollars a year. And I was right. So I think that was the thing. It's just gonna gotta stick through it. You just gotta realize and take a step back and look at your actual progress, Mm -hmm. rather than just looking at this big mountain and saying I'm not there yet. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely important to think about the journey and not just the destination and, you know, more or less detaching yourself. And we'll get more into this later, but detaching yourself from the results, uh, at least, you know, the immediate results and trying to think about how to better your process. But as a quick follow on there, you know, why do you think you stuck through with investing and trading as opposed to maybe pursuing another career? A, you know, I'm very stubborn. Like when I get into something like I I want to... I want to see it through. Like there's nothing bothers me when, you know, even like if I start some watching something on Netflix, nothing bothers me when there's like progress bars halfway completed. You know, like I have to complete it, even though it's the worst series. I'm not enjoying it. I'm not having fun with it. It's horrible show. It's predictable. I still got to finish it. You know, mm-hmm. I hate leaving things like halfway done. So I think that's one of the things, you know, definitely stubborn with that. I want to have everything completed and it's by OCD, you know? Uh, so that was one thing. But number two thing was like, what else am I going to do? I was in college. I was in my dorm room when I started trading. I was 18 years old. Like what else am I going to do? Right. I mean, there was no other option for me. And I applied to a lot of jobs. I applied for internships and BMW and all these different companies. And I got through the interview stages in those companies to get a job, uh, but I couldn't find anything and never got a call back, never got a job, never got an internship. And uh, I had no other option where, I saw my friends in college getting these great jobs and great internships. And in London, before you graduate, uh, there's a thing called a gap year where you have to work one year somewhere mm-hmm. before you can actually graduate. And, and that year before graduating, I just couldn't find a job. I tried everywhere from the best companies to the startups. So for me, I was like, all right, I, I guess this is going to be my year. I got to figure this stuff out. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's no other option. And I'm glad. I didn't get a job because had I got a job, I'd probably still be there trying to climb the corporate ladder. So, you know, it turns out to be a good thing in the hindsight. Yeah. You know, it's funny how things work out in the moment, especially when you're in mm-hmm. college and there's a lot of peer pressure seeing a lot of your good friends or a lot of people just getting jobs at these really great companies. You know, think the Goldman Sachs of the world, Bank of America's, JP Morgan's, you know, these very big banks. Uh, and it can be really troubling, especially when you're young. But it's incredible in hindsight, looking back five, six years, you know, on a career when you kind of make your own path and you're kind of thankful that everybody told you no. So really great that you were able to do that. And on a note earlier, uh, you mentioned your OCD. I can definitely feel that uh, on a personal note last week, just to show people that sometimes the perfect week doesn't exist. Um, I'm a big money heist fan and uh, I don't watch a lot of series on Netflix, but, you know, watched one episode and had a few mi- a few episodes in the, the middle of the day last week. So um, I can definitely feel you on a, on the finishing the series part. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, that's just uh, an aside there. But really cool that you were able to pursue that. And, you know, one of the first jobs that you actually had, I was actually working as a prop trader and kind of, you know, investing money based off a firm and taking a percentage of the profits. During your time there, what do you think the biggest lessons were that you learned? I think the best thing that I learned at being a prop firm was the forced discipline, right? Because when you are... 
you know, alone, training by yourself at your home and your computer. There's nobody supervising you, right? There's nobody telling you what to do. And then it's very easy because you don't have any structure. So it's very easy to mess up and lose your money, right? When a prop firm, their software is connected to their risk management software. So it, the software said, okay, if you lose $200 today, we're going to lock you out. Software will stop working. Mm-hmm. So it's forced discipline. So you can't just keep trading, right? When you're by yourself and you're losing money, let's say, you can get into that mind where you just want to get it back, right? You revenge trade, you buy more shares, revenge and the small trade. loss keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So the prop firm, the good thing was that when you hit a loss limit, boom, the software just locks out. You can't do anything anymore. Come back next day. Mm-hmm. Right? Or if you hit your weekly loss limit, great. It's soft, software locks for the whole week. You got to come back next week. So I think that forced discipline was actually one of the keys to my success. And I tell people all the time, like, if you're going to get into trading, you should create something like that for yourself, like a forced discipline, because it avoids the disastrous losses. It avoids mm-hmm. all of those mistakes. And it's easy for you to make smaller mistakes, even if you get locked out, come back next week with a fresh mind. I think that was one of the biggest keys. And I think this other key was you have progression levels, right? Mm -hmm. Level one, you're trading with $50,000. And then your goal was to make, I think, $100 a week, two weeks in a row, and then you get promoted. And level two, you get $75,000 to trade. And now your goal is to make $300 a week, two weeks in a row. And then you get promoted if you hit your profit target. You go to level three, where they give you $100,000 to trade. Now your goal is to make maybe $500 a week, two weeks in a row. And as you keep getting all the way to level 10, where mm-hmm. you get $10 million, and your goal is to make like 20000 a week, uh, two weeks in a row, to get promoted. So these levels kind of gives you a goal. It gives you a North Star, something to aim towards, right? So you can slowly stair-step your way up to becoming a good trader. Whereas people alone, without any structure, when they trade from home, they try to get there. They try to get that million dollars on one GME or Reddit trade, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And end up losing all of it. So lack of structure. I think that's what a firm gave me was a structure. Got it. Do you think without that stop loss limit, you might have, you know, kind of lost your mind a little bit? Absolutely. I, I, I probably would have blown up the account, right? Because I mean, as a trader, you have those emotions until you have emotional mastery. Like you could really make some mistakes, you know, especially when you are trading companies money, let's say hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars you're trading. I mean, there's no limit, it could keep going down. So I think it's important that they had those limits. And I definitely think that that conditioned me in the right way. I also think that's really good practical and actionable advice for anyone trying to get into trading because a lot of times you'll see people tout numbers or tout generic things. But I like how you're saying that for anyone that's interested in the industry, you know, give yourself a limit to start out, get comfortable and then slowly advance. I think a lot of times people try to hit the home run right away. Uh, and, you know, if you try to swing for the fences right away, instead of making some contact, usually you're not going to get the kind of results you desire. So really good and awesome practical advice there. Um, but on a similar note and similar vibe, I know as you advanced through that firm, you kind of supervised and helped out some of the traders and you noticed some common psych and behavioral issues. So what were some of those issues that you noticed in traders? Yeah, so majority of trading psychology and the things that people go through are very similar. Like, uh, you know, after coaching tens of thousands of traders now, I see the exact same patterns in everybody and the same patterns that I've already seen in myself when I started. And, you know, there's a few different fears that people have. So one of them is on the fear side, which is fear of pulling the trigger. Mm-hmm. Like they see the opportunity, they see the right trade, everything meets their criteria, everything they plan for, but then they see it and they can feel a little fearful. I don't know if I should take that trade, right? Fear of losing money, mm-hmm. basically. There's a lot of people have that. I, luckily, I didn't have the fear of pulling the trigger. Um, but then the opposite side is, let's say you get into the trade 
right? Now the trade, you say, okay, I'm going to buy the stock at $100. If it goes to 105, I'll sell it. That's my target. Now it gets to 105. You're like, hmm, maybe it's going to go higher. Let me just hold it. Oh. Right? And then you get greedy. Mm-hmm. The emotions of greed come in. And then, you know, it goes to 105. You didn't take your profit. It comes right back down. Then you revenge trade. You're like, man, you know, I'm going to buy more. Now if it comes back, I'll finally sell it. Or maybe it goes against you. It starts going down. You buy the stock. It's going against you. You're losing money. You're like, okay, if it goes down, I bought it at 100. If it goes to 99, I'm going to just get out and take my loss. Mm-hmm. If it goes to 99, you're like, well, maybe it'll come back up, right? Maybe let me just hold a little Not bit more. Yeah, maybe it'll come back up. Let me buy more. Let me average cost. Let me lower my average price. And those things are horrible because now you don't have a plan. You're just going by your emotions. So fear, greed are the two primary emotions that move the market. And I think learning how to control that is the biggest thing. So that's kind of what I talk about is that people watch the show Billions mm-hmm. you know, on TV. So I'm kind of like the male version of Wendy Rose. you know. So I'm helping <laughs> traders stay through and stick to their trading plan so they're emotionally stable when they're getting into trading. So they're not making emotional decisions on a whim. Got it, for sure. I think when you take your emotions takeover, especially when you're doing something as live as trading, you know, during the main hours of the day when seemingly, you know, everything coming at you is emotional. And if you kind of react to that in an emotional way, you're probably bound to lose most of the time. So really good that you're able to kind of be that male Wendy Rhodes. And I think everybody needs some kind of Wendy Rhodes, or at least, you know, the big funds do uh, in their ear to kind of keep them sane. Uh, But on a similar idea, you know, you've worked with a lot of traders and kind of financially back a lot of traders and have had a lot of students be really successful. In your experience within the first, you know, call it half hour of meeting a new student, can you tell if they're going to be a successful trader or not? I would say I have an idea of it, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm, you know, I can't make a, because traders evolve, you know, people change, people learn. Um, I can get a sense of who's in the right frame of mind. So mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't say I can just tell who's going to be successful or not. Because uh, people have surprised me. I mean, there's people that I thought, okay, they're definitely not going to get it. But then they surprised me. They put in a lot of work, right? And then there's, they put in a lot of hours studying and coming back with great questions. So people have definitely surprised me. But I can tell who's in the right frame of mind. I mean, you have to come in with a blank slate, open mind, willingness to learn. And everything else can be trained and coached. Mm-hmm. Right? But if you come in with preconceived notions or think that you know better or the you know, market owes you something or that you are the special guy who knows some things that other people don't, that, that ego, that mm-hmm. overconfidence, that's the downfall of most traders. As a trader, you got to be really humble and realize the market's way bigger than you, right? Uh, and market doesn't owe you anything. Market is the greatest meritocracy. Whether you're an ex-CEO of a company, mm-hmm. saved up a lot of money in coming to the stock market versus if you're just a janitor coming into the stock market, market treats everybody the exact same way. It doesn't owe you anything. I think People who have that mind frame, uh, humble mind frame, uh, they can definitely learn and get coached as a great trader. Uh, people who are very close-minded or, you know, that ego mentality or they're coming to trade for adrenaline for fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the people who usually don't make it. For sure. And I also like how you said to kind of come in with a beginner's mindset. I think a lot of times, especially in popular media, as you know, you mentioned earlier, billions, a lot of times people want to be experts and Sometimes that want is more, you know, an emotional want than an objective one, as opposed to if you go into something with a positive attitude and a willingness to learn, then you can slowly build up your way. And, you know, eventually you can feel confident in yourself, but that confidence is coming from fact and not from uh, opinion. So really uh, good advice on that. Uh, You also have a really interesting LinkedIn post I saw uh, that I thought was really fascinating. So I have to ask you about it. Um, You in a video said that poker players and pilots typically make for great traders. Why is that? 
Yeah, so I've learned that over the years, we've had many ex-pilots that come to trading and ex-poker players and all, all sorts of professions that come into trading. But the successful ones that I've found, like ex-pilots and poker players, they, some, they got it very quickly, mm -hmm. right? And they get it very quickly. They get the concept. And the reason for that is, you know, pilots, no matter how long you've been flying a plane, you could be a veteran as a pilot, right? You've flown hundreds of thousands of flights, tons of hours under your belt, but still you'll humble yourself. Right, you'll come back to the plane. If it's a new flight, you'll go through the checklist again. No matter you've done it thousands of times before, you know exactly what to do. You will still humble yourself and go through the checklist, right? Check, check, check. Okay, all this is good. Now we can start the flight. Uh, I, I think that's a really good quality, right? Not getting overconfident and going through your process. Uh, so I think that's really good. And then uh, poker players, because they understand the concept of risk, they know when to hold it, they know when to fold it, right? They know how to play their hand. So they have the understanding of risk, the concept of risk, and the odds. They understand that. As a new, newer person who's not a poker player or whatever, you have, you're coming from a job background, right? Mm -hmm. You're working for somebody else. You don't have any concept of risk because you're always used to risking the company's money. The boss is telling you what to do. Your supervisor is telling you what to do. Your manager is telling you what to do. In trading, nobody's going to tell you what to do. You're by yourself. So I think that self-reliance uh, poker players and pilots have a lot is humbling themselves, going through the checklist, concept of risk. Because uh, for somebody mm -hmm. who's never risked their own money, they don't have that concept of risk. In trading, you're risking your own money. There's no company's money. It's yours. So I think that is one of the biggest things to learn. And I think that's why uh, ex-poker players or uh, you know even ex-business owners or pilots mm -hmm. make for really good traders. I think the harder time is for people um, who are coming from, I don't know, like a I would say uh, like a regular job kind of background. Mm -hmm. I think for them, you have to teach them the concept of risk and odds and money and how to manage your money first. Yep, for sure. When you start uh, risking your own money, I think a lot of perception comes in and uh, stuff really hits the fan. So definitely an agreement on there. But speaking of risk tolerance, how do you think people can boost their own risk tolerance or kind of the average person can boost it? Yeah, you, you got to build it up. So you never want to just, you know, even if you, let's say you only have $1,000 that you mm -hmm. can lose. You don't want to risk $1,000 on that one idea, mm -hmm. on that one trade. So you got to work your risk tolerance up. So I always, when new people come in, we always start them on a demo account where everything is real, just the money's not real. So first mm -hmm. you get used to pushing the buttons, understanding the platform, to see how everything works, how to get in, get out. You figure all of that stuff out first. And then we only let them risk like $20 or something, $30, right? You get used to that. Now you get used to taking a lot of those $20 losses. Now you're conditioned. It doesn't bother you anymore. Then we work our way up. Let's go to $50 loss. So they get your mind conditioned to that. Lose $50 over and over. Okay, you are your condition. Now let's go to 100, 200,000. And we work, we stair step your way up. You never want to jump from one level to risking tens of thousands of dollars mm -hmm. on any idea because you haven't built that muscle yet. So then that's when you feel jittery or your emotion. You want to get out of the trade. You want to get out quickly. You don't want to hold it forever. And uh, I think you started getting really fearful. So I think conditioning and training your mind is, is the key. So it sounds like overall, you know, really putting, you know, well, one, actually kind of practicing in it, but going one step at a time and getting conditioned before you're getting to the higher levels. Yeah, you never want to leapfrog. You want to stair step your way up. Yeah, for sure. It makes sense there. And I think that's a great way to approach it. Uh, you also have, I mean, I want to say tweet. I feel like I'm conditioned. Speaking of conditioning, conditioned to say tweet, but the platform now is called X. So I don't know what the official post on X is called, but we'll just call it, you know, Elon's platform. I think that that's the easiest way to say it. But uh, on that note, you have a really interesting post talking about risk management. And you said it's an art and a science. So what do you mean by that? 
So it's a science as in that, well, anything with numbers, you could, you know, create a models out of, right? You can create the odds, percentages kind of work, your win rate, loss rate. So it's a science in so that you can keep a track of your trades and you can come up with an odds, just like a casino knows that it has, a, let's say, a 1% edge mm-hmm. when they're playing roulette. So it doesn't matter how many people play, how much a person wins. In the long run, they have that 1% edge. So in trading is the same way. We track our trades so that we know that, okay, my win rate, let's say, is 50-50. Mm-hmm. If I could take a 10 trades, I'm going to win half, I'm going to lose half. But then I know that my winners are two times the size of my average loser. Mm-hmm. So by that ratio, it's impossible for me not to make money. Right? I can take 10 trades, lose on five, win on five, but if the winner is two times my size of the loser, statistically, it's impossible for me not to make money. So that's the science part. Right? The art part is understanding when to risk the money, when not to risk the money, Right, using your judgment on which is a good trade, which is not a good trade. Should I get into this or not get into this? Should I raise my risk here or lower the risk there? That's all that feel that yeah. can be trained, like the art element of it, you know, because uh, it's going to be different. Maybe I really love this trade on let's say on tesla i'm gonna risk more money and this other trade i'm not too sure about maybe i'll risk less money right so that's kind of the art part about it uh but the science part is that you know your ratios like i know exactly how much every loss i'm going to take is going to be i know exactly what my winner is going to be so i know exactly at the end of the month roughly where i'm going to end up i can know all of that because i've calculated it and that's the Mm -hmm. science part do you think investing is more art or science Investing is, well, same, both, because, you know, the art part is, well, which stocks you pick, which markets you pick, right? That's, you're picking that. So that's the art part. But then the science part is, well, if you just put your money in the stock market every month, don't even look at it, the compounding will take care of itself and you're going to average roughly 8 to 10% in a long enough time horizon. And that's a science. So I think that's, you know, both science and art. Okay, fair enough. I think, you know, the way I see it too is, I don't know if I, I'd assign more of the other, you know, I see it in my head of like the science, you know, you can know all the valuation methods and you can know all the ways looking at it. But I think the art really comes with practice and your intuition getting there. And I think for whatever reason, a lot of people doubt their intuition sometimes, but I think when they learn to go with it after a lot of experience, uh, they'll get more promising results. So definitely in agreement with you on there. Uh, on another note, you know, similar to what we were discussing, you also have a really interesting post on LinkedIn that I think a lot of people will be surprised about this. You know, when people think of hedge funds, they think of, you know, outlandish earnings, big money, you know, typical Wall Street, six, sorry, nine figure salaries, uh, to put it that way, for, at the highest levels. Um, I guess sometimes seven if you're thinking about the really big boys. Um, but you said to never trust the hedge fund manager. Now, I think that's really interesting coming from someone working in investing. So why do you have that opinion? Yeah, um, you know, I've been in the inside of the whole industry. I mean, I, there was a point where I was going to launch my own hedge fund. So mm-hmm. we went to the lawyers, we did the paperwork, I'm ready to launch the hedge fund. And I just kind of like, I went to a lot of these networking events, surrounded myself with hedge fund managers so I can get in the game. And I just learned the business. And it was just like, man, that business has nothing to do with trading or investing. It's all about how much money can you raise? It's all about like all the discussions there were like, let's go to this event, let's go to this next event, let's meet these people, let's meet that people, let's raise more money. And I was like, nobody's actually talking about trading. Nobody's actually talking about investing. Nobody's talking about like the art of trading and investing. They're all talking about raising more money in this next networking event. So I learned that the business is a lot more about kissing a lot of frogs, as they say, mm-hmm. rather than actual art of trading and investing, which is what I liked. So, And that's number one. The number two reason was that majority of the hedge funds, 90% of the hedge funds actually underperform the S&P. So you could buy the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ and you are going to get better returns than most hedge funds out there. Mm-hmm. right? So think about that. 
hedge funds underperform the market. You're better off just buying the market. So why would people trust a hedge fund manager to give them a percentage, right? Whereas they can get more money just putting it themselves in the stock market. And that's a fact. You can take a look at most top hedge fund returns and they lag the market. So that's number one. Number two is, uh, number three, I guess, is that those hedge funds can lose their investors' money, but they'll still take their percentage. (laughs) That just doesn't sit well with me because when I was thinking about launching my hedge fund, it was performance-based. Whatever I make you, I take a percentage of that. Otherwise, I don't take anything if I don't make you anything. The majority of the hedge funds, they charge like a 2% management fee. Mm-hmm. So even if they lose money, they're taking their 2%. And I think that is what I, I just doesn't sit well with me. And that's why I was like, I'm not going to start an hedge fund. This is like getting into the swamp with all these people. Yeah, it's good you brought up that point. So for kind of the people that aren't as familiar with hedge funds or that kind of investment vehicle, uh, they typically charge, although we've seen kind of more innovative fee structures, they typically charge a 2 and 20% fee. So uh, as Anmol mentioned, uh, kind of uh, there is that perform the twenty percent performance fee, but there's also a two percent asset fee. So that's basically you just giving them two percent just for holding your money, which is one of the things you mentioned you didn't like earlier. Um, so just to follow on to what you said, do you think you know after going to all these conferences, you noticed that a lot of hedge funds are more about raising their assets under management instead of coming up with innovative strategies to kind of make their clients money? Oh yeah, a majority of them don't have any strategy. They they pretend. This is our new shiny. This is all about how to create presentation, right? Mm-hmm. That's basically what I learned. Is they create these fancy models. They're like, this is the special model that our hedge fund has. We do this. We focus on these assets. And they'll make these brilliant-looking slideshows to raise money. But there's no strategy. All mm-hmm. they're doing is they buy the market. They buy a little bit more of Apple. You know, little tweaks here and there to make people think that they're actually doing something. But majority of them are not doing anything. They have no research, nothing. It's all just a, a big show uh, for investors. And uh, it's, it, it's, you'll be surprised. And I've been to a lot of these hedge funds office. Some of them have, you know, tens of billions of dollars under management, billions. And I've been to their office. And it's just nothing. It's all about where are we going to raise more money? How are we going to get more assets under management? Mm-hmm. Making these brilliant slideshows and presentations all day long. And there's no model. There, there's literally nothing that exists. Yep. So there's only a handful of hedge funds like Ray Dalvey's and those big people that actually know what they're doing and have a strategy. 99% of the others are just vehicles for, uh, you know, raising money or they're good talkers or good presenters. Yep. They also use a lot of buzzwords like, you know, height or risk adjusted management or kind of a best in knowledge program or kind of the best risk adjusted return. So I'm sure all this is, is kind of uh, sounding like deja vu to you after being to all yeah. these conferences, but do you think that a lot of times GPs or the leaders of these funds are more focused on storytelling than kind of talking about their strategies? Absolutely. It's it's all sales. It's, they're in a sales business. That's it. They mm-hmm. got to sell their fund. And that's the whole business they're in, you know, innovation fund or alternate asset fund. I mean, it's all it's all just BS. It's all just a name to try to get more investors and more assets under management. Uh, but people need to realize that even if hedge funds get the exact same return as, let's say, the S&P 500, but because you're paying them a 2%, you're actually getting lesser return than if you just bought the market yourself. And the, the 20% fee too, they're paying them as well. Yeah. Got yeah, it. So if you factor all of that, even if let's say S&P ends up at 12% for the year and the fund gets 15%, but even if you factor all of the 20% they're going to take, 2% they're going to take, all the other fees they're going to charge, you're actually going to get less return. So you're better off uh, just buying the S&P yourself. And there's also that peace of mind that comes with that 12% of buying just a, an index fund instead of watching the hedge fund go up and down in 17 different ways. So yeah. definitely uh, got to assign some kind of value to that. But I uh, really agree with you on that point. And I think words to the wise, if any funds are really confident in their strategy, 
instead of charging an assets under management fee, just charge a performance fee and put the money where your mouth is. And then, you yeah. know, we'll really see that. who knows what they're doing. So, you know, really interesting notes on there. Uh, you also have a quote that I thought was really cool. Another quote, you have a lot of really good quotes that I'm pulling from here. So that's where a lot of these questions are coming from on Mole. But uh, you said that strategies won't help if you don't execute on them. And mm -hmm. on that note, why do you think a lot of people fail to execute on their plans? I think, you know, a psychology, right? So the A, first, they fully don't trust the strategy, perhaps, right? They don't believe it. Uh, and uh, that's one thing. Number two, a lot of people don't track it. They go to trading and they just buy the stock, sell the stock. They don't keep a log of it. So, you know, if you're running a business, you're going to collect the receipts, right? You're going to maintain a log of your business, which product sells the most, which doesn't sell the most. You're going to track all of these things. With traders, somehow, they don't track a lot of those things. So if you don't track it, how are you going to trust it? So mm -hmm. that's number one. So tracking it, trusting it, and then having the strong psychology to stick through it. Because every strategy will have its winning streaks and losing streaks and ups and downs. Every strategy, no strategy is always up. So I think what happens is when people go through a downward streak, they start doubting themselves. They're like, hmm, maybe the strategy is not going to work anymore. Let me tweak it. Let me change it. And in so doing, they mess it up. So there's a saying that I always say that if I give a man a strategy that is sure to make him a millionaire in, you know, let's say 10 years, but in the hopes of getting there in one year, he's going to tweak it. He's going to optimize that strategy. He's going to fix it, you know, try to tweak with it. And 10 years later, he's still not there yet. Because you're still jumping into the next shiny object. Let me tweak it. Let me fix it. I'm like, but if you just stuck to this for 10 years, you would have been there already. And 10 years later, you're still tweaking and fixing and figuring out the next holy grail, which doesn't exist. So I think getting out of your own way is the number one thing. For sure. There's also a matter of getting it too. I think a lot of people, you know, want to try to think long term. And even if they know that's right, they're like, how do I do this? How do I do that? Fact of the matter, it's not that complicated. You just do it. You stick to it. You know, you don't pay attention to, you know, practical indifferences, whether he has this or she has that. You just kind of stick to it, be at peace with what happens. And, and that's the way to go. So I'm glad to see we're kind of in alignment on there. Um, yeah. You also spoke, you know, I know you know a lot about Wall Street and, you know, you live, uh, live very close to kind of everything that's going on. Um, but you mentioned on the Fire Nation podcast that Wall Street and movies and Wall Street in real life is, is a big difference. So. Why do you think uh, movies portray Wall Street as this big, exciting thing when in reality, that's not the, not the case? Yeah, because, you know, majority of Wall Street actually needs uh, interns to work for pennies on the dollar. Yep. Right? So they can grab the coffees for the hedge fund guys or do the errands, copy the paperwork. So they, you know, nobody's going to come to Wall Street if that's what they show. The reality of Wall Street, right? Printing out stuff, sitting on a computer, working out spreadsheets. It'll pretty, look pretty boring. So you're not going to attract a lot of people. So Wall Street, they hype it up that this is this exciting career that you can get to. Uh, so that's how they attract the new talent for that. And I think, uh, and also, I mean, it'll be a boring movie if they just show a guy sitting on the computer waiting for opportunity and putting out numbers on a spreadsheet. It'll be a pretty boring movie. So, you know, people need to realize it's a movie. They got to make it exciting, you know, and it tr attracts a lot of people. But real trading is good good boring trading it's majority of the time we're waiting for the right opportunity we're not doing anything or pushing these buttons we're just sitting waiting waiting for alerts to go off or system to meet your criteria and majority of the time is just sitting and waiting for the right opportunity you know we also have to keep in mind now that i just kind of thought of it is that a lot of these wall street movies are based off illicit activities and illegal things that happen so even if wall street was like that you probably don't want to do that because these people are either riding away or those that aren't riding away have have rotted for many years and uh you know don't have the best pr around them so yeah they're showing it more so around uh the brokerage side or 
the sell side, as we say, right? Mm-hmm. From the sell side or the brokerage side or those penny stock, pump and dump kind of guys, mm-hmm. oil room. So it's showing it from more from the sales perspective. So I don't doubt maybe the sales side is exactly like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, from the trading side, we're actually making those decisions on stocks uh, and not really selling to any customers. It's It's a very different game. Yeah, for sure. And people uh, want to see the plot. So unfortunately, uh, boring movies don't sell, even though uh, yeah. they're not exactly realistic. So interesting note on there. Uh, another fun fact, and while you're actually an author and you titled the book titled Prepping for Success, Prepping for Success, 10 Keys for Making it in Life. Before I get into some of the things in the book, what was the motivation behind writing it? So, you know, originally, I kind of wrote it for myself, believe it mm-hmm. or not. Like this was a book that you know, I was going through a lot of stuff in my own life and, you know, just growing up, like I I always wanted to fix something, you know, like I wanted to get better. It was like a thing that I just had and it never felt like I was enough growing up. So I was like, all right, I'm going to learn. I'm going to be the best I can be in terms of mindset and all of these things. So I embarked on a journey of like personal development, you know, hiring coaches and mentors and going to retreats and spiritual retreats and you know, seminars and workshops and just the whole journey to develop myself. And then when I got into trading, I realized that, oh, emotional stability is really important in this career. And that that made me even more interested in personal development and the mind of how we work and why we do some things and why we don't do some things. So I think um, that was the journey I embarked on. And uh, so after spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on this, I compiled my notes to myself. Okay, these are the 10 things that I've learned. These are the 10 things that I need to do in my own life to get the success that I want to have. Mm-hmm. And then I executed and applied those things in my own life. And guess what? I got the success that I wanted. So that's when I, that was the inspiration for me to say, okay, if I can just somehow these take these notes that I've written for myself and turn it into a book, it could help a lot of people, right? And there were one time there was a couple of friends at my home. They grabbed this thing. They're like, this is actually pretty good. You need to turn this into a book. And then that's when I hired an editor. I'm like, all right, here are my notes. Let's figure out how we can turn this into a book format that people can benefit from. And that that was kind of the whole idea where it started. Good. So the big motivation was to kind of give back to, you know, just to help people out in situations and to help people see what you wish you saw way back when you started. Yeah, because not everybody has hundreds of thousands of dollars like I spent attending all these retreats, hiring coaches and seminars. And not everybody has hundreds of thousands of dollars to do that. And also the time, like I've been studying this stuff since I was like 15 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I was that kid when I'm like 14, 15, I'm studying NLP and I'm studying hypnosis and I was studying all those things when I was like that young. But I know that it took me so many years to learn all of that, that even if somebody had hundreds of thousands of dollars, they can't learn all of this in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. So if I can just somehow distill it into some small book that they can actually finish, uh, that's going to be great. And I think, uh, that was my motivation to give back. Uh, I think uh, it's a beautiful motivation. And, you know, it's definitely a really interesting book. And I've read a few lines and can definitely uh, resonate with them in the sense that they're very actionable and, you know, provide valuable content. And one of those lines is happiness lies in the journey, not the destination. Uh, so on that note, why do you think a lot of people or kind of not enough people seek out happiness, you know, during the journey when in reality, when, you know, they have this illusion that all the happiness is when they get to the destination? Yeah, it's a human condition. We all are wired to think that way. We're all wired to think that I just need to get this and then it'll be perfect. I just need to make this money and then my life will be great. And then you make the money, you're like, if I just get healthy, then it'll be perfect. And then you get healthy and you're like, if I just get into a relationship, then it'd be perfect. It's just, it never is perfect, Mm -hmm. right? We're always trying to get somewhere. If I just, there's a human condition that we're missing something. 
We need it's something outside of ourselves. We need to get, and then I'll be happy, and then I'll be give myself the permission. There's no then. You never get there. There's no such thing. So you have to learn how to enjoy that journey as you're getting there, right? Because there is no destination. Success is just life. Life goes on. Time goes on. And the way I think about it is like, you know, there's a boat in the water, right? And the boat's just going to drift, right? So if you leave the boat as is in the water, what's going to happen? The boat's just going to drift. It's going to go wherever it wants to go. Mm. So if you want the boat to go a certain way, the boat is a metaphor for your life. If you want your life to drift a certain way, you have to take control of that wheel and steer it to where you want it to go. Otherwise, it's going to drift and that's just a natural condition. So I think um, that element is the biggest thing to realize that the journey is where the fun lies and you control that journey. Wherever you want this journey to go, you can stir your life in that way. But there will be never be a destination that you get there and then everything is going to be complete. Uh, there's no destination. You know, a lot of times when people are focused more on the destination is because they want practical things to improve, you know, whether it's money or relationship or a bunch of other things. But do you find that when people really appreciate where they are and kind of really appreciate the journey, that's when practical circumstances really start to improve? Yeah. And again, you might not be happy with where you're at. I mean, that's okay. You know, if you're not satisfied, you're like, you know what, I'm in my area of my life. I'm not happy with how I am in my finances right now. I could be doing a lot better. And that's okay then you enjoy the journey of getting there, wherever there might be for you, all right? So uh, if you are somebody you're like, you know what, I'm not financially stable. Great, own it, accept responsibility, be grateful for the fact that you're even here, the fact that you even have the thought that you could do better. That's great. I mean, that's beautiful, right? You have a thought that you could do better. That's confidence coming from somewhere, universe or God or wherever you believe in. Mm -hmm. It's coming. A thought is coming that, hey, so inner voice, you could do better, man. Like, come on, you could do better. And you listen to that voice and you enjoy the journey of as you get better. I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned. God, I think that's beautiful. And definitely, uh, without getting too into my journey, something that I've tried to embrace. And while I'm not perfect, uh, trying to keep advancing. So definitely it resonated with that. But on a similar note, you also said and mentioned common sense and common practice. So what's the difference between the two? So, I mean, com common sense, like, you know, a lot of people say, oh, that's common sense. I'm like, yeah, but... Is it common practice? Are you actually applying that, right? Because mm -hmm. a lot of people know a certain thing. I mean, we all know, right, what we need to do, really. If you think about it, when you ask ourselves the question with a quiet mind, like, what, do I, what can I do about it? You know the answer. Right? So we're all seeking the answer, but we already know the answer. So I think that is one of the things to realize that, okay, the answer is within us. We need to act on it. We're the one who controls it. And just being be happy with the journey and you know, enjoy the journey. So we all have the answers within us. We don't need to look outside uh, for those answers. Do you think we're conditioned to think that way? Kind of, even when we know the answer, we're trying to kind of get validation for it. Yeah. And I think I wouldn't say we're conditioned that way. I think we condition ourselves that way because mm -hmm. we have like, you know, growing up, what happens is our parents are telling us what to do. Right? And then you go to school, your teachers are telling you what to do. And then you go to college, your professor is telling you what to do. Then you go get a job, your boss is telling you what to do. So there's always somebody in our life telling us what to do. But for the most part, who do we spend the most time with? Ourselves. Mm -hmm. So when we buy ourselves, nobody's telling us what to do. right? So we have to tell ourselves what to do. And that is the inner voice. So if you really sit down with yourself and just really think about it, what is my inner voice saying? It's telling you what to do. Got to train ourselves to listen to the inner voice rather than looking for validation outside of ourselves. Like I need this mentor to tell me what to do. I need this guru to tell me what to do. I need my, you know, my pastor to tell me what to do. I need my spiritual leader to tell me what to do. 
learn how to listen to your own inner voice. That will tell you what to do, right? And we all know exactly. If I ask 10 people right now, you think your life's not perfect? They'll be like, okay, not really perfect. I'm like, okay, tell me three things. You, if you did those three things, your life would be better. And everybody can say, okay, if I did this, if I worked on my health, if I did this, my life would be better. I'm like, great. That's your inner voice. You already know what to do. So what permission are we waiting for? Mm-hmm. Right? Why don't we just go ahead and do it? And that was actually one of the biggest things for me this year was like my health. Last few years, I've been traveling, you know, a lot and just, you know, kind of living that lifestyle. And I just kind of ruined my health a little bit. You know, I gained a lot of weight and I was like, okay, I know what I need to do. <laughs> like, there's no question about it. I don't need a trainer to tell me what to do. I already know it. But now I have to put systems in place in my own life to execute on that information, right? Rather than just hoard all that information. Now you got to apply it. And that's the common sense and common practice. Common sense, yeah. I know what I need to do to lose weight, eat healthy, work out more, right? But now is it common practice? Maybe not. If I'm going out all the time, if I'm going out to dinners all the time, it's not common practice, is it? So I think that's kind of the long-winded answer to your question. You know, I think it's a beautiful answer. And also I have to commend you for the vulnerability because a lot of people will say things like you have to do this, you have to do that. But not a lot of people will be like, look, like, you know, I'm not perfect either. There's some stuff I can do and, you know, there's stuff we can all work on. So I applaud you for kind of opening up and, you know, I'm sure, you know, with all everything you've been up to, you'll, you'll get there 100%. Uh, so great on that. You know, on another note, you know, you've had a really successful career in investing and trading psychology and have helped a lot of people. but God forbid one day you lost it all. How would you start over? You know, I I have, there was a couple of times I've lost it all, but I got it back. And I think it's just because retracing your steps. Because once something has mm-hmm. worked work for you, then you know how to get there again, right? And you just trace yourself back. Okay, what are the things that I did to get there? And then you just repeat those action steps. Uh, but, you know, coming back requires that, that ability and confidence in yourself that knowing that you can come back, that's step one. Because a lot of people, when they lose it all, come back is hard for them because they get mentally broken. Mm-hmm. So if you are a mentally tough person, right, like really mentally tough, and I think being spiritual helps, you know, because I know that, okay, the universe is looking after me. Otherwise, it would have never given me something in the first place mm-hmm. if I can't get it back. So I think having that element outside of yourselves gives you that ability to do that. Uh, but yeah, if I lost it all again, uh, I will do the exact same thing I did. I'll just do it again. But then I'll try to learn from those mistakes. I'll like, where somewhere along the line for me to lose it all, I dropped the ball somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I take responsibility. It's not about, oh, the markets crashed or the economy is why I lost money or, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, I take responsibility. Somewhere in the line, I didn't do something right. If I lost all the money, there's some risk management that I didn't do, right? There was account management that I didn't do. Somewhere along the line, I dropped the ball and I'm not going to drop it again. I think that's the lessons you take from that. I think the thing, too, that a lot of people don't consider and, you know, God forbid someone loses it all, but people go through crazy, crazy circumstances. And, you know, that could be a whole nother podcast episode or podcast in itself. But I think what people underestimate, too, regarding, you know, being practical is that, you know, I think the difference in timing between when it took you the first time to get from point A to wherever you wanted to go and the second time is the knowledge gap. So obviously it's hard to come back, but the more knowledge you have from your first time around, the quicker you're able to get back on your feet just because you know a lot more. So I'm sure that could definitely be a creative uh, to that as well. But really interesting advice on there. Uh, another question, you know, that I that you alluded to earlier you know, you mentioned that you had a mentor, you know, just out of curiosity, is there anyone that you think has been the most influential to your success? I would say there's a lot of people. I mean, it's hard to name one. 
Uh, there's a lot of people influential in the success. I mean, my dad has been influential in my success because growing up, you know, he wasn't around a lot. I maybe saw him like five days in a year, mm -hmm. but I saw him working his butt off. Like I saw him working really hard. Uh, I saw him, you know, traveling around the world, you know, doing his actual hard work. At that time, he would, you know, go to these countries and buy these used machineries and bring it back to India, fix them, repair them and sell them. There's a lot of manual work involved. And I saw him doing a lot of that. So I think that work ethic is what I took from him is number mm -hmm. one, that the desire to, okay, we got to do better for the family. We got to do better for ourselves. And that's it. Nothing matters. It doesn't matter if I'm tired, you know, I'm going to do it again. So I think the work ethic that influenced me a lot. Uh, and then uh, my business partner who actually taught me how to trade influenced me a lot too, because you know, anytime I was losing money, he would be like, all right, let me send me a spreadsheet. I'm like, oh, I didn't track it. Like, what do you mean you didn't track it? Track your trades. So like, he kept putting my focus back on things that I can do. Rather Accountability. Than all. Yeah. Accountability and also like keeping him focused away from, oh, this is not going well. So, okay, this is what I can do about it. So I think that was influential to me. And then there's a lot of mentors that I've crossed paths with along the way. Uh, Tim Grover. You know, uh, was a great guy. We did coaching back in the day. Um, and, you know, he's been influential. Uh, Werner Erhard, probably the most influential in my life uh, in terms of personal development. Um, so I think that Tony Robbins to a certain extent as well. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, Werner Erhard, uh, I would say in terms of personal development and mindset has one the biggest influence on me. Just so I'm not, not mistaken, Tim Grover's the guy that coached Jordan and Kobe, right? Correct. Yes. Got it. He's a yeah. He's a, an interesting dude. And it's often maybe uh, hopefully one day maybe a guest on the podcast. But we'll leave that for another line. Um, but you mentioned one of the things earlier about your dad and really taking away that work ethic and seeing him work hard. You know, something that I've been thinking about recently is kind of you know hard work and doing your best. So you know, two things. One, do you think there's a difference between the two? And two, you know, do you if there is, uh, do you believe in you know working hard or just doing your best? Well, doing your best is better. Mm -hmm. because every, every anybody can work hard but not everybody gives their best mm -hmm. you know like if i ask people like you know did you work hard at it they're like yeah i work really hard at it i'm like could you have done better they're like yeah I'm like so you didn't give it your all so you know giving it your all is always better than hard work anybody can work hard but not everybody can give it their all you know it's really interesting because you know i've been thinking about it as i mentioned but thinking about it a lot recently and i think a lot of times you know a lot of people when I say hard work or working hard, sorry, hard work or doing your best, think of the same thing. But I think for whatever reason, hard work, people tend to have that more connotated more towards the results or more being result oriented. So I think a lot of times when people you know, are in their own definition, working really hard, uh, they get mad about it, not having results or this, or that or whatever, as opposed to when someone's doing their best. For whatever reason, I feel like that phrase has a connotation of like, you know, you do what you can and, you know, the result will take care of itself. So personally, you know, I'm always happy to have a dialogue, but I believe in doing your best. And that's the, the kind of mindset I've been going with, but definitely an interesting thought to, to keep in mind. So really happy that you brought up that, you know, on another note, you've done a lot of work in the investing space as we've kind of spoken with, is there one investor who you'd love to meet or get dinner with? Um, probably Paul Tudor Jones or Ray Dalio. Yeah, probably the two that I would say high integrity people that uh, I would probably love to meet or have dinner with. Yeah. What would you ask them? Uh, honestly, I wouldn't ask them anything to do with trading investing, just observing like mm -hmm. how they are as a person, right? how they live their life. And then um, 
Because I think investing, anything you want to learn from them about investing trading, they've already written in a book or talked about in a, you know, interview that you can already find online. Mm -hmm. I think I would just kind of observe on, like, you know, I, I get very curious on how these high performers like handle themselves, how mm -hmm. they react, how they are as a person, how how are they actually living their life outside of trading. I think I would love to, uh, you know, kind of get an insight into that. I think that's that's really cool. And I think a lot of times people in that kind of opportunity would rush to ask them a bunch of investing questions when I think the wiser approach is to kind of see how they think and try to emulate that and then kind of iterate that to what works on you. So I think it's a really, really smart and strategic answer there. And Mo, what would you say in your life brings you the most happiness? Most happiness? Well, um, two things, you know, from my own perspective, I would say, obviously, if I'm doing everything the best that I can. Like if I if I can look at myself in the mirror and say, okay, you know what, I did everything that I could, or you know, I did my best. Let's say, right? That that'll make me really, really happy because there's nothing worse than you look at yourself in the mirror. You're like, yeah, I could have done better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you didn't give it your all. Right. So being able to be look at yourself and be like, you're totally congruent. Like I am who I say I am. So that is the best happiness, right? But secondly, outside of myself, obviously, is when let's say a student writes me an email saying, hey, man. You know, for example, this is a real story. This guy, Aaron, in our chat room, uh, in our community. So he's a farmer. He owns this farm in Tennessee, you know, uh, and he makes maybe seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000, but really manual labor as a farmer to make that money. But then he got into trading a few years ago. Now he's making hundreds of thousands of dollars, two hours in a day on your computer, not having to do any of the farm work. So when he wrote us an email saying, man, like, I had to do manual labor like all day long, these hours, like toil in the soil, all of that for that much money and no time with my friends and family. Now I'm on my computer. I kiss my kids, uh, kids goodbye to school. I see them every day. I have all the time with my family and I'm making more than that. I think that those kind of emails and we have tons of stories like that, that definitely make me happy realizing that, okay, it's not just that I'm helping people live this lifestyle, you know, mm -hmm. like they're buying these cars or whatever. It's not that. It's about that, how much it means to somebody. You know, it makes me more happy, email like that. Somebody even making, even if he's just replacing his income from a job, right? He's only making $80,000, not much. But if you're making that and replace your actual job, that makes me more happy than somebody who says, I made a million dollars and I bought this Lamborghini. Mm -hmm. like, that's fine. They're great for you. But I think the true thing is that somebody who did all this hard work doesn't have to do that hard work anymore, has a time with the family, and replaced his income from his computer. Yeah, definitely that beautiful and to see that impact. And glad that you're able to, you know, see that impact with a lot of your students. And on a parting note, you know, as I've mentioned earlier, you've done a lot of great stuff and have definitely learned a lot in your own personal life and have helped a lot of people regarding investing and trading. But when it's all said and done, what do you want your legacy to be? Um. You know, I'll be selfish here. I mean, my, my legacy is basically like I want to be, I want to look back at myself and I want others to look back and say, okay, you know what? That guy was a real deal. He did what he said he was going to do, right? And uh, he lived life congruently. And I think that is my whole thing is like, I don't want to look back and say, I could have done this better. I didn't give it my best over here. And that's why I talked about health earlier. It's like, that is my number one priority for this year, right? And, and that will get me to feeling like, okay, way more congruent than I am because I can put my mind to something and then I can achieve it. So I think that legacy, that, okay, if you can put your mind to something, you can achieve it too, is kind of all I want to be known for, right? I was born and raised in India. I got here with nothing, made it happen, right? Made it happen. No excuses. Now, people who are born in this country, you already have a leg up on me. 
right? I mean, I had to come here the hard way, do all, all sorts of stuff. I actually opened up an auto repair shop when I came here just so I could come into the country the right way. I mean, now you can, I guess you can just cross the border and come. But like mm-hmm. for me, I had to come the right way, spend a lot of time and money and energy and a lot of savings uh, to do this the right way. So I think, you know, that would be the message that you, you, you all can do it. Right. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And then uh, just try to be the best version of yourself. So every night you go to sleep, you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, you know what? I, yeah, I, I definitely gave it my all. So I think that's kind of the legacy would be nice. I think, uh, you know, that's all we could ask for and a beautiful legacy. And, and well, it's been an absolute blast. You know, you're a great dude and really appreciate you taking the time. And, you know, thanks for coming on the show. No, thanks for having me. It was great chatting with you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Anmol Singh. If you enjoyed the episode, rate the show on Spotify, drop a comment on YouTube, and subscribe.